Welcome to the Pain Solutions Podcast. Dr. Wayne Fimister is a family physician with a special interest in chronic pain, whose passion is finding solutions for this epidemic problem facing one-third of the adult population. He is a clinical associate professor at the University of British Columbia in Canada and has developed one of the first online medical trigger point injection courses for doctors and nurse practitioners, a technique that is easily learned and implemented into the medical office of any doctor or nurse practitioner treating chronic pain. To get free access to Pain Solutions newsletter, blogs, and to register for his online course, simply register at www.waynefimister.com. On the podcast, Dr. Wayne brings together experts from various segments to share with you how they solve people's pain problems and how you can get this treatment too. And now, here's your host, Dr. Wayne Fimister. Well, hello and welcome to the podcast show today. My very special guest is Guy Felicella. Thank you, Guy, for joining me. Oh, thanks for having me. Okay, so Guy is a worker with the Vancouver Coastal Health and he works with the homeless, he works with people with poverty issues and with substance abuse in the downtown east side in Vancouver. And one big part of his job is working with people regarding harm reduction services in the heart of the opioid crisis that we're actually seeing here in um, BC and in particular Vancouver, but also in the communities around Vancouver. So thanks for joining me. So, Guy, let's just dive in. Um, can you just give us a little bit of background? Because not only do you work with these unfortunate people in our society, but you've gone through this experience yourself. Do you want to just share a little bit of your story? You know, I grew up in a middle-class home in uh, Richmond, British Columbia. And through tough circumstances in my home life and uh, led to issues of depression, anxiety, and isolation and what had happened is I couldn't find a way to cope and it was very painful growing up and I could just never get any traction or find any stability as a person. And when I was a very young individual at the age of 12, I found substances as a way to cope with that pain. And um, when substances stopped working, you just transferred to use other ones. So I looked for more powerful substances and Eventually, I uh, found myself in the downtown east side of Vancouver at a very young age. I was a resident of the downtown east side from roughly 1993 to 2013, but also from 83 to 93. I was a visitor in the downtown east side, and pretty much in 1993, I never left. And until 2013 and so you know I was homeless for for 20 years and uh, injecting substances in my body 30 40 times each day literally to describe addiction when when people saw me they actually crossed the street and so what people don't understand with addiction is that you have to attach a story to it yeah so what you see always isn't as what it seems and so really what was happening inside with me is, is you know, I, I struggled with the issues of pain from the past. I could never get over them. And, and to try to, to deal with those issues without substances was pretty much uh, lead to suicide thoughts. And, and so for me, it was drugs just became part of my story for so long. What had once become a, a ways and means to cope 
became a physical dependency to substances and the word addiction is it's more the dependency that became the issue solely because I had to have these substances not only to deal with the pain, but it's, it's ironic because what are you dependent on? You know, food, water, you know, if you're a young kid, you depend on your parents. And so what I relied on the substance to do the job was to self-medicate the pain. And so really it's not even an addiction anymore. It just became a complete self-medication thing for the pain that I was struggling with for so long. And so ironically, um, to try and get out of that, people believe that you have to address the addiction first. And I don't know, that's debatable. I think there's issues that, uh, number one, that when you're homeless, there's no hope. So if you don't even have like a place to live or a place to call home, then how are you going to address the, the substance issue? And so I think there, there's a lot of issues that are going on in society. And basically my job today is, is to really just try to inspire people to, to do something else besides the dirty street drugs. Because that's what really I think the biggest issue is, is the culture and the stigma that exists in society that's driving this opiate crisis to new heights as well. I think people have to get through to understand that people don't choose to be homeless or people don't choose to be poor and people don't choose to use these substances daily. People are struggling. And so naturally for me, it's just trying to find whatever their journey is. I'm just uh, honored to be a part of it. And so that's, that's basically kind of, you know, my job is what I do. So... Well, listen, thanks so much for that sharing your story and what it was like as a very young person at the age of 12, my goodness. And then you found yourself for basically 30 years looking for solutions and looking for, for answers. You know, I know as well that many people die on the streets and now we're seeing this horrible situation and I'm sure you're full up with them. Um, statistics, you know, because you've researched this, you've been in the middle of it. So can you just share some statistics that are going on now in North America and, and close to home here in BC? You know, the funny thing is, is that, is that the harm reduction services that don't exist, like let's say in the United States, in the United States, seven people die every hour of a drug overdose. And in 2017, there were 72,000 people that died of an overdose crisis in the United States. In British Columbia, four die every day. And in Canada, 11 die every day to a drug overdose. But the, the, the real astonishing numbers is that 80% of the people that die of a drug overdose die alone. And 60% of those die in a private residence. So that's just like a house like you or me. And so you, you really have to ask yourself is why are people dying alone? And if you look at that, the 62% that die in a private residence, that's not in the downtown east side. That's in every community. And so really what drives that is the culture and the stigma that exists in society. I've had numerous people contact me struggling with substance use issues that have families and jobs and, and they can't go reach out in their community because of the stigma and the culture that they would get tagged. And so what's happening with people that use substances is that 
the way people are judged and the shame and the guilt and the embarrassment that comes with it. People are willing to give up their lives so that they don't have to deal with that because to walk into a clinic and let's say try to access harm reduction services, you're going to be looked at as a person that uses or what society classifies as a drug addict. So people can lose their jobs, their families, their children. And so naturally when you have all this going on, it hinders people from reaching out and receiving help. And so those numbers don't lie. And so that's the part that really needs to be addressed as we move forward with this crisis. And I still believe truly and solely because harm reduction kept me alive for, for decades. And so the irony behind it all is that when I got to the downtown east side, there was no harm reduction services. And actually one in four had HIV. Uh, hep C was rampant down there. You couldn't access a clean syringe. You couldn't find clean water to use your, your drugs. So you were using, you know, puddle water or somebody else's syringe. And, and so the, the spread of infectious diseases. And then in the early 90s, uh, an organization called the Portland Housing Society actually came into the downtown east side. And they basically are a harm reduction service that would hand out clean syringes and water for people. And so what that did is that started to cut down on the infection rate. And so really what harm reduction does is harm reduction actually, you know, saves a lot of money in society as to like hospital stays where people are coming into the hospital for infections from not using clean syringes and or dirty puddle water that... So when you start to give people these, these services, they can actually use in a safer environment. And that's where supervised consumption sites are now, you know, all throughout Canada. However, in the United States, there's none. And so that's why in the United States, if you look at it, seven people are dying every hour and 72,000 people died last year. And they're roughly around the same numbers as this year as well. And so when you have these supervised consumption sites, what it does is it's, it's so much more than just a place where people inject drugs. What happens is that people go in there daily to use, but it's almost like something magical happens. And when you think about it, if somebody is actually choosing to use on a supervised consumption site, what they're actually saying is that I'm choosing to use safer, which is the first sign of somebody actually trying to get back to taking care of their body or their life or their well-being. And what also happens there, which is really powerful, is that the staff there are non-judgmental people that just meet you where you're at. And what that does is they start to get to know your name and start to have conversations with them. And then, you know, lo and behold, before I knew it, after I was brought back to life there six times, all my friends are basically nursing people, doctors and uh, support workers. And so the irony is behind it all today is that uh, today I work with them all. And so it's really a powerful connection. And they've got to see me along the journey of being in addiction, but also the journey of being in recovery. And so it's, uh, it's really powerful for them because a lot of people, you know, when you just see the numbers, you know, we wonder if we're really helping people. But these supervised consumption sites are saving lives and there's never been a death uh, ever 
in any of them. And there's over 80 that exist around the world. And even in the one in Vancouver where there's over 6,000 overdoses, there's never been a death. And so that in itself just tells you that people just don't die when they go in there and use. So, and what I always say is that uh, you keep people alive long enough and for hopefully to give them the chance of the ability to change their life, you know, magical things happen in people's lives. And, you know, people had given up on me for decades saying that I wasn't going to change. And, and from being a guy that was, you know, 20 years in the downtown east side, homeless and on welfare, um, to being a guy that's married and now has two children and bought a house, you know, has a mortgage, has a career job, does public speaking, educates the public on, on harm reduction and addiction services. I mean, people change. And so I think what it is is that the biggest piece is, is human connection can change the direction of somebody's life. And definitely the people that exercised uh, compassion and uh, in my life really navigated it and changed it. And I'm, even when I was in addiction, I was learning all these skills from people that were outreaching. And just by the way we treat people can be a powerful tool to change somebody's life. And so it worked in my life and I just exercise that in other people's lives today. And many people come to me for advice and, and how to get help and, you know, how did you get better and what did you do? And it's a humble journey for sure. And, and life throws you things. I always admire people, how they handle adversity, uh, how they get through it, not just when you react to it. It's, it's really how somebody handles themselves in those situations. And, yeah, through painful uh, experiences in my own life, you know, you gain a lot of wisdom around it. And so, yeah, it's, it's a great journey and I wouldn't change it for the world. I really wouldn't. Wow, what do you say to that? Congratulations in coming through that and just amazing, amazing story and horrific story, really. Dead six times and brought back to life with resuscitation and here you are today helping other people on the same path that you've been down. So you, you mentioned uh, several things, um, harm reduction services, 6,000 of them. Where are they in Canada? So Vancouver has, I believe it's probably about three or four in Vancouver. Surrey has one. Calgary, Toronto, Montreal, Ottawa just got one. In Canada, it's acceptable. Vancouver is kind of the epicenter for harm reduction services, almost even around the world now. And so naturally that's great, but there's a lot of gaps in the system that need to be addressed as well. And those gaps exist in where in order to address people to change their lives, number one, the biggest problem that I have today is what I see is if somebody wanted to go to recovery that was homeless, sure, you could get them into the recovery facility. And I've gotten a few people in these treatment facilities. And after the 90 days, they wind up in a shelter back in the downtown east side. And that just shouldn't happen. And so housing needs to be addressed. I think housing is part of the problem as well. I mean, I know lots of people that want to go to treatment. However, treatment ends in 90 days. And then if they're going to go through treatment in 90 days, why would you send them back to being homeless? That just shouldn't exist in Canada. And so what I think needs to happen moving forward is that that needs to be addressed for people. If they go to treatment, they shouldn't be homeless when they leave treatment. They should be able to go somewhere where they can actually continue on their journey. And that's a big issue that, that exists that needs to happen. And I had a couple of clients that completed treatment and then 
they sent them to a shelter in the downtown east side of Vancouver. And naturally, two days later, the, the clients came and saw me and said that they relapsed. And I said, yeah, no kidding. And that's scary, too. So naturally, too, when people get off substances and let's say, you know, their tolerance goes down and you come back and, and somebody to send somebody into the downtown. He said, it's almost giving them a death sentence to say, here, uh, we're going to send you down here. We couldn't get you any housing in this area. So this is where all the services exist. So naturally, I, I think moving forward, what has to exist is everybody has to join in in this battle. All communities have to join in and say, okay, like, what can we do as a community to help in this crisis? And I think the biggest thing is having transitional housing for people because people need a place that they can call their own and lay their head and, and you know, be proud of their house. A lot of the problems that exist in the downtown east side is that, you know, these SROs are run down you know, unbearable and, you know, sadly, people don't have any hope in them. And so if you don't give people hope, how are people going to get better? And so even in my own life, I didn't have any hope. I'll tell you who people brought me hope. It was those outreach workers or those people that showed up in my life and bought me a coffee and said, hey, do you want to go have a sandwich? And it was those types of conversation that people had hope for me. And so after years of seeing this, naturally that inspired me to actually change my life. I honestly too, you know, there's no hope for people. That's the tragic part of it. And so a lot of people feel hopeless. And so we as a society have to bring hope to people that are struggling in order to change their direction of life. Absolutely. Um, regarding the, the housing, you know, transitional housing, what is available? like say in communities, Abbotsford, you know, Chilliwack, you know, these smaller communities, smaller cities, Langley, outside the bigger cities of Surrey and Vancouver. What, what are available there? I know in Abbotsford, there's a few recovery societies that are out in Abbotsford, and I'm sure a lot of them are doing a great job out there in their communities. However, with that being said, is that most recovery houses, you know, some you can stay there, up to a year, which is good. However, when people are struggling with addiction, it can be pretty hard for them to navigate getting a job. And so they need assistance with that. I think too, when you're dealing with a demographic of people that are in Langley, a lot of them that are struggling with substances. I mean, I live close to Langley, so you know, I see a lot of homelessness out there as well. And so naturally, where when you see homelessness in Langley, that, that probably needs to be addressed as well. And I think, you know, a lot of the discussion with this new modular housing stuff that's been popping up in Vancouver. I know there's one now starting in Richmond, which is great. However, you know, it's still based on society being acceptable of these places and facilities in their communities. Hey, I tell you, here's another statistic. Nine out of 10 people want people to be able to go to treatment and get better. However, just not in their area. And that's the unfortunate part of it. So you can't put all these services just in the downtown east side of Vancouver because what that does is it's just an overloaded system. That's where they naturally are being forced to go because there's no place for them to get supports. And so what happens to people that are from other communities that filter into the downtown east side, it just becomes a, a trap. I mean, heck, I grew up in Richmond. 
And how did I wind up in the downtown east side of Vancouver? It was just the only place that I could go where I was accepted. And naturally what people didn't attach to it is that I was just struggling with something bigger than the substances. It was the pains of the past. And heck, today, I, I mean, a female client that hadn't been abused. And so when I hear their story, it's, it's heartbreaking to hear somebody talk about the abuse that they've gone through for, for so long and, and that they can't cope with it. And so this is their way of coping. And I understand that. And so I'm an accepting person towards that. And so I just try to make them feel like they're, they're a human being and they are. And human beings, I believe, are put on this earth to help each other. And so I'll choose to do that instead of being judgmental. And really, if I'm going to be judgmental, how can I be judgmental of somebody else's life when I make mistakes every day myself? So, Well, listen, thanks for those comments. And I entirely agree. You know, we're here to help one another. And hence this podcast, sharing information, bringing awareness of these big, big issues that is facing most big cities across the world, I would say. And we, we need to solve them at, at the highest level as well as the individual level if we're going to move forward. So just to find to wrap up here, guys, is there any final thing you would like to share that we haven't quite touched upon today? Well, I, I think the, the one thing that just, just have a little compassion towards people that are struggling because the sheer amount of lives that are being lost because of this crisis is just astounding. And it's human life. It's somebody's brother, somebody's mother, somebody's daughter, somebody's son. This crisis doesn't impact the person using the substances. I'm talking it impacts families, communities, friends, employers, everybody. And so naturally, one of the biggest things that I think needed to be addressed is that we don't have to wait for people to go into the destruction And so for me, a big piece of it is education to youth and speaking with youth today because naturally addiction hasn't changed in 2,000 years. However, the drugs have, and they're far more powerful. And my thought process behind it is that working in this crisis for so long where I saw the services going into the harm reduction services and the treatment services, what I really thought was getting lost in the picture was the, the kids in the school system. And so what I've done is started creating uh, programs to, to go into schools and actually talk to kids. And so a big part of my job today is actually going into these schools and speaking to the students about the crisis. And uh, I'm telling you, uh, you know, I was just in Victoria doing a talk there a couple of weeks ago at a, at a high school and the sheer amount of kids that came up to me after with tears in their eyes because they, they thought that, uh, you know, their parents gave them up for adoption because they didn't love them. And Really, the perspective that I gave them is that people struggle with substances for a different reason, but your parents would, would never give you up. They just realize what would be the best thing for you because they weren't able to, to be there for you at this time because the demons that they're struggling with from the past. And, and one student made a comment to me saying, I don't even know my mom's story if she was abused or, you know, I just had this vision that she left me when I hear you talk about it you know, it gave me some sort of understanding and it's something so small, but to her, it was so big and, and that can change the direction of a child's life. And so for me, where I've really become really passionate advocate is for youth services and advocacy for youth and educating youth that act 60% of the substances out there are tainted. This is a tainted drug supply that's existing in our community. 
And so naturally, first-time experimentation from uh, a child today can result in death. And so, you know, heck, I want to give them the, the details of what exists out there. And for me, naturally, it's just to, to be a voice of uh, letting them know that, uh, hey, if you are going to experiment, and guess what? People use drugs for different reasons, and some of it is experimentation, but at least please don't use alone, use safely. And so naturally, last year in Delta, nine kids thought they had bought ecstasy. What they bought was fentanyl. And all of them overdosed. And luckily, the one person that didn't take it was able to call 911. And they were all revived. That's tragic. And so these are kids that are 14 and 15 years old. Society can't be fooled by by where this thing starts. 95% of addiction starts in the youth. And so for me, the biggest thing that I've, I've seen and the biggest impact for me is that educating the youth in the grade eight to grade 12 system where you can really get through to a lot of them and actually shape the direction of their life where if I can just help one not use substances, then it would change their life where they don't have to go down the same path that I went down because People just don't survive an addiction as long as I do anymore. The life expectancy of people that start to use drugs and get really gripped in it is about five years where I lasted 30 years. There's not too many people that are going to last that long and especially living a hard life that, that I'd lived. And so naturally for me, it's just being passionate about giving them that education that we're all going to struggle, but together in human connection, can really help us. And so it's about reaching out and talking about it instead of isolating and disconnecting. And so moving forward, those are the two biggest things. You know, we have to be more open about it and start talking about it a lot more. And not only that, but getting it as part of the community where the community starts to be accepting people because tragically one life lost is sad. And then that breaks not only that family's hearts, but also the people that got close to knowing them. So that's what I think. Well, listen, Guy, again, Guy, thanks so much for, you know, coming on the show today and sharing your story and what you're up to and, and helping the youth and helping the people down in the Dantani side. And, um, yeah, just much appreciation for your services. And, uh, thank you so much. So, well, when we talk again, I look forward to seeing you again and, um, let's just call it a day here. So thanks again. All right, Wayne. Thanks a lot. Have a great evening.